Um, it's really um, kind of wild to be here with you. Um, for those of you who don't know, I had a kind of a serious bike accident about four months ago now. And um, uh, by serious, I mean this is the first time in almost 20 years that I've missed four months of being at San Francisco Insight. And, um, you know, other times I've been gone for a month or two or so for meditation or some traveling. But this is the longest period that I haven't been here. It's been very interesting to uh, have the kind of accident I had, which is basically a very simple bike accident. You're going on a, down a hill, a steep hill. The bike somehow gets out of control and you end up falling. I ended up falling. And, you know, I'm smart enough to wear a helmet, but yeah, but I have, you know, a pretty serious injury, uh, meaning concussion and then physical injury, broken bones and all that kind of stuff. And, um, um, and it was... Um, uh, as an adult, I've never had this kind of physical injury. Um, you know, the last serious um, problem I've had, of serious, was when I was maybe 14 or 15, and I was hospitalized for a few months. But nothing, nothing that serious has happened for me since I've been grown up. I mean, there were things that could have happened, for sure. Like, it's too conservative, especially as a young adult. But luckily, nothing bad happened, and, and I've been relatively okay. And so it's been uh, uh, quite an uh, altering of my life to have that kind of accident. And so I feel both very appreciative to be here, I'm very appreciative of the, the group of San Francisco Insight and just thankful for how well it's functioned. And I mean, the board who really, everybody stepped up and took care of the group and then the, the volunteers who've, who've helped and the teachers who've helped, especially Anushka, who's been here most predominantly while I was gone. And... Um, it's, it's humbling to go through the kind of accident I had, and which had a, a lot of concern. I mean, really, this is something to be totally honest, you know, I could have died or I could have lived, and it wasn't clear at some point what was going to happen. And it wasn't clear to my friends and my family, the people who were taking care of me, the medical people who took care of me, wasn't totally clear which way it would go at times. And even to me it wasn't clear. Even from the inside it was it was clear that um, that anything could happen really at certain times. And it wasn't a bad thing, but it was definitely ch- changing. It definitely um, the way that I've said this to people is I felt um, disconnected from the usual identity and the usual sense of how I knew myself. And it's not like I didn't know who I was or something like that, but it wasn't the familiar and it wasn't the usual, it wasn't the relative understanding. And it was, it, it was, it's been a powerful 
period and I feel very grateful for all the people who've helped and helped me and so the board here or the volunteers here but also all the people who wish me metta or wish me well or care that I be well or do okay uh, because I was really surprised at how powerful that kind of you know we, we don't usually call it prayer in Buddhism but that kind of good wish is and the kind of impact it can have and the kind of impact it had on me because I have my questions about whether I would have lived or not depending on what happened and how people responded and the fact that a lot of people responded very positively partly because I happen to have um, a strange fate of representing the Dharma and um, which is a really lovely thing to do really wonderful thing to do um, but it's, it's you know one could do anything in life and anything can happen and so it's it's just really uh, touching to be here uh, to be honest and uh, quite moving and so I'll say just a couple things up front, which is um, I'm not, I have, for the first time in, like I've been doing this group for close to 20 years. And for the first time in a long time, I was nervous coming here. <laughs> I, I haven't been nervous. I mean, you know, sometimes if you're teaching a new retreat somewhere or you're doing something kind of, you know, exorbitant or exaggerated or interesting and maybe you get a little nervous but I don't really get so nervous coming to San Francisco Insight every Sunday night that I'm in town and, and it's, it's fascinating to watch and, and again for those of you who don't know so this accident happened like September 20th and I haven't really worked much since then I've done a little behind the scenes work like on to some Spirit Rock teacher meeting or San Francisco Insight Board meeting or some of the other groups that I'm part of being part of teams that I'm on but I haven't actually done any teaching for four months which is the first time in at least 20 years that I haven't done that and, um, and the combination of that with the kind of unplugging that happened in the accident in other words the kind of lack of familiar um, uh, <coughs> images, experiences, uh, uh, responsibilities that usually tell us, you know, who we are to some extent or what we do. That was not there. And so it was very interesting to, you know, think about coming back and teaching here. And, and I'm in recovery, for those of you, who, which means since the accident, part of what they do when you have the kind of fall I had, and really your brain gets a little uh, shook, hit hard, um, they have recovery teachings or groups, medical recovery uh, programs for people who've had concussions like I've had and things like that. And um, so one of my, and there's, for, for me these days I've got, there's three main uh, uh, 
three main areas in the organization I'm working with at one of the hospitals, and they do physical therapy, what they call occupational therapy, and speech therapy. And really, speech therapy is just about brain. That's really what that means. Don't believe the speech therapy. <laughs> it, it really means how is the person thinking? How are they able to um, relate to how they used to function? And what needs to happen to get all their neurons running again? Some, something like that. And then, of course, physical therapy has to do with the parts of the body that have been compromised because of fall. And occupational therapy, again, it's not so dissimilar to the speech. It's really about your organizational capacity to function in whatever your job may be, and then what's needed to help um, recreate that or re-stimulate that. And, um, um, and I'm doing really good in my recovery program, <laughs> meaning they're firing me. And, uh, <laughs> Not quite, but after they had said that I should come, uh, you know, twice a week, every week for a month. And then I went the first time, and they said, you only have to come once a week. And then after I came the second time, they said, why don't you call us in two weeks and see if, you, if it feels right to come in. And which, you know, I took as, oh, that's, they're thinking I'm doing well, and I'm doing okay, and, and that's good to hear. Because, at least for me, with this kind of disconnection and pulling withdrawal from the usual ways of being and functioning and knowing myself, I didn't, I didn't think I was um, something bad was happening. But you can feel like, oh yeah, you're in a different world now. So all of a sudden you have a different identity. Or even, here's another example of my new identity, which was, um, I got a letter about a month or five weeks after my accident from DMV and they said uh, because of medical reasons your license has been suspended which is what they do when someone has the kind of serious concussion that I had in the fall accident but of course I'd already been driving and doing everything and actually feeling like, oh yeah, pretty comfortable. So now, and then I became someone who couldn't drive, which is in and of itself in our society. That's a very interesting phenomenon that I wasn't so familiar with. I've been driving a long time. I grew up in Detroit. I've been driving since I was 16 and it's been quite a while. And all of a sudden, my wife would have to drive me places or I'd have to call friends and say, can, you know, I want to go to this meeting. Can, can you give me a ride? And it's very interesting to have that kind of limitation. But when I did go do my written test and my driving test, I did fine and passed and that. So I'm fitting into the, the societal norm a little bit. And, you know, and it, to be honest, you can feel, I could feel the difference. It was surprising to see, oh, I must be okay a little bit if I, you know, I was surprised I passed the written test. Yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't easy. But, uh, and, uh, but I, my mind was good for figuring out what are they actually asking of this question and then which of these answers actually would fit it rather than, you know, 
I couldn't, because I couldn't remember whatever I studied didn't address all the questions that were on the written test very good. And it, it, I was surprised that I passed. And then the driving test I felt better about, but I hadn't been driving. You know, and I had an accident, so I didn't know how it would go to all of a sudden start driving again for, for somebody, right? The, the driving instructor, examiner. And it, it, I did okay, which was, which was pleasing. But the, the point being that, um, okay. um, now here's, here's the total honesty. This is, I can't remember what the point I was making. <laughs> exactly. Um, <clears throat> which is part of what's happened is that, that my line of thought is not quite as clarified as it used to be. It's okay, but it's, I can forget things and then maybe it'll come back in five minutes or ten minutes. Um, but really what I want to say is something about our identity and how dependent we are on our identities. We think that's who we are or what we are. And often our identity is confirmed by the outer world, how the outer world is relating to us, how others are relating to us, what we've accomplished, what we haven't accomplished. And that's all okay, that's not, nothing horrible there, but it's not the whole picture or truth of who and what we are. And so practice offers us a broader view or a broader vision to see who and what we are. And what we are, no matter what the circumstances are of our life, no matter what the conditions that may arise or fade are of life, because all the conditions will arise and fade. This is one of the few things I can totally assure you of, right? Like life itself will come and go. And so if we're identified as a human being who lives and does and is this way, well, that's okay, that's fine, but it's a temporal understanding of what's here. <coughs> Whatever is here, in the human form is not going to last forever. So, one of the deep appreciations that I've had uh, during this period of time is the appreciation of practice, really, the appreciation of what we did so far today, which is sitting and paying attention and learning how to be mindful, learning how to attend to or be aware of the various realities that compose our experience as human beings. Physical realities, emotional realities, mental realities, all kinds of sensate realities, sounds and smells and tastes and touch. And then to see that there is a capacity that we in this practice called mindfulness where we can be aware of all of that. And the identification with it is really a relative piece of it. That the, the things that happen, the sounds and sights and tastes and touch and feelings and thoughts, they're just happening. And we can be aware of them. And there's a certain kind of... Um, uh, there's a certain import the Buddha gave to studying mindfulness. 
And I know I've talked to this guy. I know you just did a number of weeks studying the Eightfold Path and ending with concentration and mindfulness. And uh, I just want to say that one of the great uh, pleasures, not even pleasure, but appreciations or gratitude that I felt was for the training that I got to be mindful. For the simple training of how, how to be present, how to be awake to what's happening. Because whatever happened for me during this accident, which was, <coughs> some of it was severe or serious or life-threatening at times, um, somehow the capacity to be mindful of what was happening continued. And it didn't just continue like, oh, I'm doing it. You know, it wasn't Eugene thinking, oh, I should be mindful now. But because of the training and the intensiveness of the amount of training I've done, it seemed to function automatically. At times when one would think, wouldn't even think about being mindful, but there was mindfulness, there was awareness of what was happening. And maybe not even knowing what to do with it, or not knowing exactly how to make it better or right or anything like that, but just to be mindful of it, just to be aware of it. And the awareness itself was good. And it was good no matter what was happening. And, you know, maybe other people's experience would be different, but this was my experience with this kind of, you know, serious injury. Serious accident. And so I, I felt um, very grateful to my teachers, to teachers in general, to the Buddha, to the Buddhist teaching, and to the other spiritual teachings that I've studied that have also had impacted what happened to me with this accident. Because um, uh, the accident brings brought up, up was well, what we would say in Buddhism was it was dukkha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many people don't know what this word means? Dukkha. Few people. Okay, so let me just tell you, dukkha is a Pali word. Pali was the, one of the teaching languages the Buddha most commonly uh, taught in, and dukkha is. Um, uh, a simple translation would be suffering, or difficulty, or dis-ease, or, or uncomfortability, or some version. Dukkha, but Dukkha in, in the Pali is much broader than our understanding of suffering, because um, it's, it's a bigger understanding of suffering. So Dukkha, you know, commonly would be something like a bad bike accident, being in the hospital for you know, one week in one hospital, two weeks in another hospital, three weeks in another hospital, that would all be dukkha in a conventional sense. Or or um, if somebody we love or care for dies, that's dukkha. Or if somebody we love or care for gets sick, that's dukkha. Or if we lose something we need, like we lose our job, or if we lose our house, or if we lose our community, it's, it's dukkha. Um, but dukkha in the Buddhist sense is broader, it's, it has more subtle or, more, or less um, complex uh, levels of dukkha. 
if you're sitting during the talk right now and your bladder starts to tell you, oh, I have to go to the bathroom, but you want to stay and hear the talk, the bladder um, calling you is a kind of dukkha. It's a, it's a small suffering, a little suffering, but it's also suffering. Or if, or if the talk is boring and you hate it, that's dukkha too. You know, so it's not a horrible dukkha, but it's a, it's a Buddhist dukkha that happens. <laughs> regularly <laughs> you, you get a bad talk sometimes and um, and and dukkha is an important word because the four noble truths are based, based or start with the truth of dukkha the truth that a human life has suffered and that and so the Buddha, in his, in his wisdom, in his awakening, what he realized uh, through his practice were these four truths. The truth that there is dukkha in human life. Not that all life is dukkha, or every life is always dukkha, not that, but just that, that it's part of human life. And if we deny that, it's <coughs> problematic for freedom. But if we begin to come to terms to it and see the cause of dukkha, then that's the second noble truth, is recognizing the cause of dukkha, or things that cause dukkha. And then the third noble truth is the freedom from dukkha, or the freedom from suffering, or the cessation of suffering, and the freedom of heart and mind that arises naturally through practice and understanding in the Buddhist teaching. And then the fourth noble truth is what Nushka has been teaching the last eight weeks or so, which is the Eightfold Path, or the path that leads to freedom, to the freedom of the Third Noble Truth. So Dukkha is an important uh, understanding, and it's an important part of human life to begin to come to terms with, with, partly because so much of our conventional reality encourages us to believe we can have a life without dukkha by having the right exercise and the right clothes and the right job and the right partner and the right house and the right haircut and the right glasses and the right scents that you wear and the right whatever it is something something will make you okay so that you won't have any problems and that's dukkha, that idea. <laughs> that is serious dukkha. Because, I mean, anything can be nice and helpful and good. You know, a good partner, good friends, you know, good job. That's all good. But it's not free from dukkha. Even the best partner, you'll have dukkha with them. Even the, the best job, there'll be dukkha there at times. And so if we're thinking that we're trying to get a life without problem or without dukkha, that's a really difficult goal to have if we don't understand that the dukkha or freedom from the dukkha comes from somewhere else. It doesn't come from external circumstances. We can definitely make our lives better, and that's, that's all good. You know, make your life as nice as possible. You know, ride bikes, have a great time, but someday you, you might fall on your bike. That'll happen. That's a that's a normal thing. 
that's not a bad thing or a whore. You know, that's just, that's what happens. Or if you're driving your car, you know, you might have a really nice Corvette or Subaru or Prius or whatever it is you like or mind. But if you get in an accident in that car, a serious accident, it will be dukkha because that's part of automobile life. Is there an accident? It's a human life, inherent in human life, are problems. And part of what mindfulness affords us, or can afford us, is the possibility of getting a different perspective, or a different possibility, or a different way to relate to the problems or the dukkha of human life. And it means we might be able to respond more maturely, or more wisely, or more kindly, or more caringly. Or it might mean that we might find a certain kind of freedom that we didn't know was possible. And there's maybe a kind of freedom possible that's not about getting the conditions of our life to be perfect, but it's understanding something about the nature of who and what we are and how we function and what it is to be a consciousness that is embodied and then responding to one another and to the world and to the difficulties. And there could be possibly a freedom that's internal and that is something more um, innate in us rather than something outside of us. And that's a little closer to the freedom that the Buddha talked about and pointed at and described as the third noble truth of being free from dukkha, free from suffering. And it was one of the striking parts of my accident was to see even when I wasn't there in the usual way or in the familiar way or in the Eugene identified, I'm a Buddhist meditator and I do mindfulness. When that was all gone, that mindfulness was still functioning. And as a function, it was good. And it created a different relationship to the dukkha that was there. And I want to be very truthful, honest here. That doesn't mean I was happy with the accident or the body being hurt or being in the hospital. I, I wasn't. I'm a bad hospital patient. <laughs> really, I'm like, get me out of here. You know, how do I get out of here? But, um, um, but that wasn't the totality of the experience. Uh, it was difficult at times. It's difficult when your body hurts or when you, you know, people are treating you and they're not very sensitive to what's helpful. They're doing their best, no doubt about it, but it doesn't mean they always know what they're doing. You know, doctoring is totally sophisticated voodoo. <laughs> to some extent, to some extent, there's some scientific knowledge, but there's a certain amount of it where the doctors, they don't know. They're really trying. Or the nurses don't know, but they're really trying, but they may not know, you know, and of course they have a certain um, 
uh, formulaic way of responding to certain things, at least initially, you know, when they think it's something, and the medicine might be helpful or it might not be helpful. It might cure what's happening or it may make it worse sometimes. And my experience was that it was hard when it, they didn't know what they were doing or when they guessed wrong or when they gave me things um, <clears throat> that I personally would have rather not have taken. But, you know, you, you, I didn't have a lot of uh, power in this situation. <clears throat> um, but still, what was... Uh, encouraging and um, moving was seeing the function of mindfulness itself function without me doing it. And what what would happen, and by that I mean it wasn't just, even though there was difficulty or suffering at times, totally, but there was also much more than that. There was some, you know, whatever word we want to use, freedom or transcendence, um, that was all happening also. And that was surprising, and um, I don't even know what it was. It was good. That's really what I thought. And, oh, this is good. And this is good to, to that somehow my consciousness has had enough training that it trusts this and knows, oh, to pay attention very closely to what's happening is a good thing. And then with the paying attention, the responding gets more sensitive, better. And just the consciousness is, I don't know, I don't, I don't even know what to say. I keep wanting to say consciousness is good. And it's a little, doesn't sound as, uh, as strong as I feel, but um, uh, that there's something innate or inherent in us that we can discover and we can trust. And I think the Buddha was pointing at that in his teachings of mindfulness and his teaching of the Dharma. Mindfulness with no higher. 
And, and I have to say, I was totally impressed with that. Because it wasn't me doing the heart, just like I wasn't doing the mindfulness. It was just, there was a goodness inherent in the practice. And the goodness was a heartfelt goodness, a care, a love, a kindness. It was just part of the, of the of mindfulness itself. <clears throat> And in the, in the further stages of recovery, remember I'm still in recovery from my accident, um, uh, it's been really interesting to watch the recovery and how fast it's moved, especially once I got home. I was in the hospital for almost five weeks, and the last three weeks were a recovery hospital. Uh, I'm sure it helped, but really what I saw personally was my recovery really started to happen once I got home. And I I believe, this may be false, but I believe that something about the familiar warmth of being with my wife and family at home um, uh, had a really big impact on my consciousness. And so the, the recovery started happening very quick. I could even watch it or, or recognize it day by day. Uh, um, or, or, or when something would start functioning, some part of my you know, mental, emotional, cognitive capacity would start functioning. It wasn't like nothing, I, I don't remember nothing functioning, but still things would start to come back online in a more familiar, in a more current, in a more um, conventional way. It was that I would even recognize, oh, wow, this is happening now, you know, which wasn't happening yesterday or an hour ago. And it's like, boom. And so it was very humbling to see how seriously hurt we can be or disturbed we could be, or um, or how seriously we can lose the familiarity of our world, and then we can still function. And not only function, we can still be mindful, we can still be aware, awake. And the process of awakening doesn't have to end. Um, And so it brought, like I said, a lot of gratitude for practice, for teachers, teachings. It also brought a great appreciation for um, uh, people, really. Great appreciation for people. All the help, you know, that it takes to survive a bad accident. I mean, you know, I had to be helicoptered to the hospital from where I fell. And, you know, even that, that's because it was serious and there was concern and that people, people worked the hospital, the helicopter. People are there at the hospital waiting, you know, for people like me who've had a bad accident to come in and they're there to care for us. Or one of my friends, colleagues who was on the bike ride, who was a nurse, came with me in the helicopter to help take care of me because she saw I needed the help. And um, 
I mean, I could just keep going over and over, and you could think for yourself of when you've been helped, of when you've been cared for or taken care of. You know, maybe it's this kind of dramatic, you know, injury, or maybe it's something not so dramatic or something smaller, but still, the care of others is so important. And it's one of the important pieces that makes us a community here, right? We actually have a caring committee, and we have a, 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 a sangha where we do metta for each other. We care, we wish each other well which is such a beautiful thing to do. And it's beautiful because it's, it's good for the heart and it's good for the soul, right? Okay, all that. But also, I think most of us don't know how powerful it is, how, how good it is for us when we have any of that. Um, I mean, you know, we do the metta practice and for those of you who are new, it's a loving-kindness practice, wishing care and loving-kindness for people. And um, um, it's just, uh, what, however good I thought it was, I think it's way better now. <laughs> really, I feel like I got a transmission of metta way beyond anything I knew. Um, and it wasn't a cognitive transmission, or it wasn't even like I'm sitting there in the hospital and thinking, oh, oh this is great, I feel all this metta. No, it's much more, uh, it was much closer than that. It was much more tangible than that. Much more part of life. And it's funny, I have, I have an association which was that part of the recognition for me with the accident was seeing in an even in the deepest way maybe ever that I've seen how totally connected we are and how illusory the sense of separateness is. Not that we don't all feel it and feel it at times and feel it very strongly. We all do. That's part of the dukkha of human life and it's the belief that we're separate. But in fact, it seems so clear that consciousness is so much bigger than separateness, is so much broader than that. That was like totally clear. And I'll read you something. It's not my favorite story from this woman, but I like this woman very much. And I realize she said something about this at some point. It's from Alison Wright who's a practitioner and uh, a teacher, and she, um, she was in a serious accident in Asia. Um, <clears throat> she was in a, uh, on a bus in uh, Laos on, on a jungle road and got slammed into by a logging uh, uh, truck. And, and I'll just read you a little bit of what happened to her. My left arm was shredded to the bone as it smashed through a window, back, pelvis, tailbone, ribs snapped immediately, etc. Et I mean, this was a bad, seriously bad accident. Worse than my bike accident. This is very bad. My lung collapsed and diaphragm punctured. She says, I can barely breathe. I was bleeding to death inside and out. It would take more than four hours before I received real medical care. 
a practicing Buddhist I had been headed for a meditation retreat in India where she planned to sit for three weeks. Instead, I lay crushed and bleeding at the side of the road. Struggling to draw in air, I imagined each breath to be my last. Breathing in, breathing out, consciously willing myself not to die, I concentrated on the life force fighting its way into my lungs. Along with my breath, pain became my anchor. This is another paradox of what can happen with practice, sometimes when it's needed. She said, as long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. I thought back to the hours I had sat meditation fixated on the sensation of my leg falling asleep. The discomfort could hardly compare to the torment from my injuries, but I discovered that meditation could still help me focus and remain alert, and I'm convinced it saved my life convinced it saved my life. I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and the bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I never felt so aware, so clear-headed, and completely in the present moment. So this is one of the great paradoxes of, of practice at certain times, which is even in, in situations we think we have all these ideas and beliefs and assumptions about it. We find actually we're much different than our ideas and our beliefs and our history even. She says, six hours passed, no more help arrived. Opening my eyes, I was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. And then I became convinced I was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. Right? Like she gave herself up to the worst fear, which is death. And she said, I let go of all fear. I was released from my body in its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me. A bone-deep peace I could have never imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it meant to be. In that moment, I felt my spiritual beliefs transform into undeniable experience. <coughs> Buddhism had taught me the concept of interbeing, quote-unquote, interbeing. The idea that the universe is a seamless mesh in which every action ripples across the whole fabric of space and time. As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other. As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other. I realized that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. A warm light of unconditional love encompassed me, and I no longer felt alone. So, that's a beautiful understanding from Alison Wright. And a beautiful understanding of the possibility of practice that many of the one of the things I saw very very clearly maybe the clearest ever was that my ideas about reality and my beliefs about reality my former experiences about reality and the kind of assumptions I held or expectations I held were not true they were ideas, they were beliefs, they were assumptions, they were expectations. That at some level, 
reality is so much more vivid than that. And all of us, all of us, will discover this realm of life because we'll all die. That's just, it's not even a bad thing. It's just part of what we get. It's part of human life is that we all die. And so whatever ways we've identified or overly attached to some idea or belief about ourselves, that'll get challenged at some point. And that's not a bad thing. And if we have some capacity, if we've developed some of the facility for learning how to be with reality as it is, not how we want it to be, not how we expect it to be, not how we think it's supposed to be, but actually learn how to be with reality as it is, we will discover something very deep about ourselves. And very, and I believe, very beautiful about ourselves. Because we are also reality. We're reality now in the form of human beings. But whatever enlivens us, whatever makes us conscious, is part of reality. And it's a beautiful opportunity we have to be human beings. It's really beautiful. I mean, it's such an amazing deal to be human. I mean, really, that we can talk <laughs> and mostly be understood, or that we can love or care for one another or things, we, that we can be creative make music and art and theater and worlds, buildings, computers, all kinds of, it's all being made up, right? It's all being created. It's such an amazing thing to be alive. And one of the most amazing things is we can discover something about our nature as living beings, as human beings. And Buddhism is one of the great teachings pointing us at this. And it's, it's not even esoteric at a certain level. It's very simple. Can we be aware of what's happening right now? Can you feel your body right now? Can you feel your emotions right now? Even if, even if you're born, that's okay. We don't care in Buddhism. You can be happy or sad, they're both good. <laughs> you can, I mean, it's really one of the great things about mindfulness practice is it doesn't fix how reality should be. It says, well, reality, we can wake up with reality. That's what's beautiful about reality. We can awaken here with anything. And some people awaken with deep dukkha, bike accidents or something worse. Some people awaken when they're making love and in ecstasy. And then most people will awaken while they're waiting for the bus or something like that. You know, something a little more, you know, less dramatic than making love or having a bad accident. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.